if I were to allow my son to make all of his own decisions, I'm not sure he would survive to adulthood. He wouldn't eat three nutritionally balanced meals a day. He wouldn't bathe himself or floss his teeth. He wouldn't visit a doctor or a dentist, and he wouldn't have any limit as to how much time he spent in front of a screen. I asked him, I asked him what he would eat if I allowed him to eat whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted, and he said that his diet would consist of cereal and candy. (laughs) And then I asked him what he would do with his time if I allowed him to do whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted, and he said he would play video games, which I'm positive he would do until he couldn't keep his eyes open any longer. And day after day, he would continue in this unhealthy lifestyle until he tragically passed away at a young age. And this isn't just my child who would do this. Take any five, six, or seven-year-old and let them do whatever they want, whenever they want, and they will harm themselves simply by doing the things they want to do and avoiding the things they don't want to do. But what about us? Those of us who are a little bit older, a little bit wiser, it's easy for us to look at a six or seven-year-old and see that it's obvious they need some guidance. They need some parental oversight in their lives. But do those harmful tendencies still exist in us? Are we at risk of pursuing things that will ultimately lead to our own demise? And to be clear, I'm not even talking about sinful things. Like, I don't believe that video games and candy are inherently evil in themselves, but they can become sinful depending upon how we view them and how we use them. And there are many things in life that aren't inherently bad or evil, but if we give ourselves to them the way a child might give themselves to junk food or games on a screen, we will cling to those things even as they drag us over a cliff. And so I say, yes, we still need some kind of parental oversight in our lives. And we have that. Many times in the Bible, we are given warnings about the dangers of money and possessions, the dangers of wealth, of stuff. The Bible never says that these things are bad, But like kids in a candy shop, the allurements of this world have a way of making us lose sight of what's truly life-giving. We lose sight of what's most important. We lose sight of God and his purposes for us and for this world. And so God in his goodness has put up warning signs throughout his word and he's given us these warning signs Because he loves us, because he cares about us, he wants to keep us safe. And the safest place for the people of God is to be near God. And so this morning, we're going to spend some time focusing on one of those warning signs, which is found in Matthew's gospel account in what's known as the Sermon on the Mount. And so if you have a Bible, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under a chair near you. 
Matthew chapter 6 is on page 761. Page 761. We'll be looking at verses 19 through 24. Matthew, Matthew chapter 6, beginning with verse 19. Please follow along as I read. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So because we're dropping into the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, it'll be helpful to consider briefly the context. When Jesus began his ministry, he kept telling people to repent and believe the gospel because, as he also said, the kingdom of God has come near or the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he could say that the kingdom was near because he himself was the king who had come. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus the king gives us a picture of what citizens of his kingdom look like. And so at the risk of oversimplification, Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 by showing us first what the character of his people look like. And he then moves on to various aspects of how we should relate to other people. And then he tells us how we should relate to God. And now beginning in verse 19 of chapter 6, the king is going to show us how kingdom citizens relate to or should relate to their material possessions. What should be our attitude toward earthly things? And I use the word attitude on purpose because if you read the Sermon on the Mount in its entirety, Matthew chapters 5 through 7, you will find that Jesus doesn't say much about what our external behavior should look like. He does say some things, and the Bible is clear that the way that we behave is important, but citizens of God's kingdom aren't merely those who have transformed behavior They also have transformed hearts and minds. Our outer life and our inner life need to be in alignment. And so Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount and in much of his teaching, he's going after our hearts. He's going after the controlling center of our lives. Our whole selves must be given over to him. And those who are in the kingdom of God are those who have stopped trying to rule over their own lives and instead have made Jesus their king. And so which kingdom 
are you in? Are you in the kingdom of God or are you in the kingdom of self? Are you in the kingdom of heaven or are you in the kingdom of this world? Is Jesus the true ruler of your life or are you the ruler of your life? And I know, we all know what the right answer is. Like, of course, Jesus is the king of my life. I'm here at church, aren't I? But our religious activity can't be the only metric that we use when we're asking a question as eternally significant as this one. Are we in God's kingdom or are we not? And this was the big issue in Jesus' day. The Pharisees and other devout Jews would look at their moral lifestyles. They looked at their religious activity and determined that they were righteous before God. But Jesus knew their hearts. He knew that even though they looked really good on the outside, inside they were actually rotten to the core and far from God. Whitewashed tombs is what he called them, full of greed and self-indulgence. And so Jesus uses a metric that gets straight to the heart. And this is the main idea this morning. Our attitude toward earthly possessions will show us who is the master of our lives. Our attitude toward earthly possessions will show us who is the master of our lives. And so as we look at the text before us, I have three questions which also make up the outline of the sermon. First, what do you treasure from verses 19 through 21? Second, where is your focus from verses 22 and 23? And third and finally, who is your master from verse 24? And as we consider these questions and answer them for ourselves, my prayer is that they would show each of us who is truly sitting on the throne of our hearts. So let's pray before we begin. Father in heaven, it is difficult work, difficult work to answer these questions honestly, and we need your help. I ask that you would keep us from self-justification, you would keep us from making excuses, you would keep us from deceiving ourselves into thinking that we're something that we're not, and by the powerful work of your Holy Spirit, Open our eyes to see you as a greater treasure than all that this world has to offer because you are far greater. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So first point, question number one, what do you treasure? Look again at verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. The first thing to notice in this verse is that Jesus isn't making a suggestion here. This isn't a piece of advice that we can take or leave at will. It's a command from the king, and it comes to us with the same authority as any command in scripture. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, and you shall not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. This is a command from God. And so what are these treasures that we're commanded not to store up? What is Jesus referring to? I'm guessing that when you hear the phrase, treasures on earth, something pops into your mind. Something that you value here on earth. 
earthly treasures could be broadly understood as anything that people find valuable in this life. Anything that people find valuable in this life. But specifically here, treasures on earth refers to money and possessions, wealth, tangible, material things, things that can wear out or deteriorate or corrode, things that can be lost or stolen. So Jesus is saying, don't live your life merely to collect more stuff. Don't spend your life on things that don't last. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. He's saying, don't heavily invest in something that will only decrease in value over time and finally be worthless. And if you could pick anyone in the history of the world to be your investment advisor, you don't even hesitate. You pick Jesus because he knows how the world's economy will end. And he says, don't put your hope in the world's economy. Don't bank your future on things that are here today and gone tomorrow. Things that ultimately, when you die, must be left behind. You can't take them with you. And I can't stress this enough. God himself is speaking to us in this passage. The one who came from heaven to earth. The one who can see beyond the 80 or so years that we have in this life the one who knows all things, the one through whom all things exist and for whom all things exist is here making it abundantly clear that God's value system is different from the value system of humanity. And thankfully, he doesn't only tell us what not to store up. He also tells us what we ought to store up. Look at verse 20. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. So to borrow an illustration from Randy Alcorn's book, The Treasure Treasure Principle, which I highly recommend, suppose I offered you a $100 bill right now. It's yours. Take it. Or you could give up the offer of $100 now and instead wait five years, and then receive $100 million. And for the record, I don't have $100 million. This is entirely hypothetical. $100 now, or wait five years and get $100 million. What would you choose? Like even the most financially burdened person, the person living paycheck to paycheck, barely getting by, would gladly give up a little now for much more later. In fact, even if you knew that those next five years would be a financial struggle, you would be able to endure that struggle with joy just knowing the riches that were coming your way. It would be foolish to take $100 now. And yet, that's what we do when we store up treasures on earth. Jesus has a better offer for us, even better than a hundred million. He says there's a way to store up treasures in heaven, treasures that thieves can't touch, that inflation can't devalue, treasures that time and the elements can't wear out and that the stock market can't crash. 
He's talking about eternal treasures, never-ending treasures in comparison to the temporary treasures of this earth. And it might make us Protestants a little bit uncomfortable because Jesus seems to be suggesting here that there's something that we can do to store up treasures in heaven. And we might bristle at that a little. We just sang about it. We are grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone kind of people. We can't do the work. Only Christ can. And that's absolutely true when we talk about salvation and entrance into the kingdom of heaven But this passage isn't talking about forgiveness of sin. It's not about merit. It's not about getting into heaven. It's talking about those of us who have already been forgiven. Those of us who have been made citizens of heaven and how we should relate to our money and possessions here on earth. And I say our money and possessions, but really one of the keys to understanding a passage like this is remembering that everything we have belongs to God. Everything we have belongs to God and has been given to us to steward, both for his glory and the good of others. God has given us the amazing privilege of managing his property, which means all the money in your wallet or in your bank or in your investment accounts is his. All of your possessions are his. And just think about how our lives and priorities might change if rather than asking, what should I do with my money? Instead, we asked, what should I do with God's money? And it's when we view our resources through that lens and act accordingly, that's how we store up treasures in heaven. And the passage doesn't tell us exactly what these heavenly treasures look like. We do get some hints from other passages. For example, in Matthew 25, Jesus tells the parable of the talents, where a wealthy man entrusts his property to his servants. He then leaves to go on a journey. And when he comes back, do you remember what he says to the servants who were good stewards of his property? Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. The point of the parable is that those who are faithful with what God has given in this life will be entrusted with more in the life to come. God will reward his people for being good stewards of his resources. But trying to figure out exactly what these rewards are or what these heavenly treasures look like is not my aim this morning. And it isn't the aim of the passage to spell it out, otherwise Jesus would have spelled it out. The point that he's making is that there are two kinds of treasures, one that will last forever and one that won't. And whichever one dominates your life demonstrates whose kingdom you belong to, either the kingdom of God or the kingdom of self, either the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of this world. For, verse 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
Often when we come across the word heart in the Bible, it isn't referring to the blood-pumping organ in our chest. It refers to the center of our being. The heart involves our emotions, our reason, our will, and our desires. The heart is the core of who we are. You could say that your heart is the real you. And so if you're storing up treasures on earth, then your heart is chained to this world and to the things of this world. But if your treasures are in heaven, then your heart is in the hands of God. So what do you treasure most? What do you value most? Like I mentioned earlier, we know what the answer should be. I treasure Jesus most. But to find the real answer, we may need to take a look at our bank statements. And don't tell Dave Ramsey, we might need to take a look at our credit card statements to figure out what we truly value most. Are we selfishly accumulating more and more stuff that we don't need, pursuing extravagant and luxurious living with the hard-heartedness toward the massive needs in the world around us? Or are we using the resources the Lord has given us to further his work and to make his word known in the world? That's the ultimate investment that you can make in this lifetime. Spending your life and resources to get the word of God to people. That's an investment that will last forever and pay eternal dividends. And that's the kind of life that Jesus himself lived. Read through any of the four gospel accounts and you'll find Jesus sacrificially giving himself for the good of others, both in his life and in his death. His focus was dialed in to the needs of those around him and to his father's will for him. And so let's move on to the second point Where is your focus? Where is your focus? Now, before I read these verses again, you should know these two verses have a reputation for being difficult to understand. But if we consider them in their context, I think we can make sense of them. So here we go. Verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. So yes, lots of debate about the meaning of these verses, but most Bible scholars land on one of two understandings based on the Jewish understanding of some of these terms. Either the healthy eye represents a generous eye, and the bad eye represents a stingy or selfish eye, or the healthy eye represents someone who is single-minded, has undivided loyalties, and is focused on God, whereas the bad eye has divided loyalties and is not fixed on God. Both of these understandings work well in the context, and both of these principles would apply to our attitude toward material things which supports the main idea, our attitude toward earthly possessions will show us who is the master of our lives. 
And so with these references to the eye, is Jesus talking about generosity or is he talking about single-minded loyalty? I lean toward the second understanding, but there's also quite a bit of overlap between the two ideas. And we can clearly see that overlap in two encounters that Jesus has with wealthy individuals near the end of Luke's gospel account. And so let's consider them both together. The first is in Luke chapter 18. You're welcome to turn there if you'd like, but I'll be skipping around quite a bit, so you're also welcome to just listen. In Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 18, a man who is said to be an extremely rich ruler comes to Jesus asking how he can inherit eternal life. Jesus asks the man how he's doing at keeping God's law. And the rich man is convinced that he's doing great. He says that he's obeyed the commandments since he was a kid. Now, I might expect Jesus to respond by saying, no, you haven't. Maybe you missed my Sermon on the Mount where I make it clear that to hate someone is to be guilty of murder and that to entertain lustful thoughts is to be guilty of adultery. But that's not how Jesus responds. Instead, he says in verse 22 of Luke 18, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And so thinking back to our Matthew 6 passage about the eye, is it generosity in view or single-minded loyalty? We see both in what Jesus asks the rich man to do. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. There's the idea of generosity. And come follow me. There's the idea of single-minded loyalty. Did the rich ruler have a healthy eye or a bad eye? He was given the option to choose between his wealth and Jesus. What was more valuable to him? His temporary earthly possessions or the eternal son of God? And even with the son of God standing right in front of him, he was blinded by his wealth. And he could not see the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, as the Apostle Paul put it in Philippians 3. The rich ruler was looking into the face of the infinitely precious Christ, and he walked away. He took the $100 bill because his eyes were blinded by his wealth, and his heart was shackled to his earthly treasure. My fear is that there are some in this room who have the infinitely precious Christ held up in front of your eyes every Sunday and yet you consider your earthly possessions to be greater wealth than knowing Jesus Christ, our Lord. And maybe now would be a good time to mention We're not taking an an offering after the service. We're not doing any fundraisers this summer. We don't have any building projects going on. And have you ever noticed that we don't have any record of Jesus ever asking for donations? He was after people's 
hearts. But we also can't disconnect our faith from our finances because both are a matter of the heart. And a heart that belongs to Christ longs to be used by Christ in every area of life. A Christian is a person who can joyfully give away resources for the glory of God and for the good of others, which was something that this rich ruler could not do. But let's look at the second encounter that Jesus has with a wealthy person one chapter over in Luke chapter 19. You remember Zacchaeus, the wee little man? A wee little man was he? Like the rich man in Luke 18, Zacchaeus was a very wealthy man. But unlike the man in Luke 18, he was not a moral man. He was a tax collector and had likely become rich by taking advantage of others. He gained his wealth unjustly. You know the story. Jesus sees Zacchaeus in a tree and says to him in Luke 19.5, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. That's all he says. He just invites himself over. And amazingly, amazingly, Zacchaeus sees Jesus as better than his wealth. He sees that having a relationship with Christ is a greater treasure than all of his earthly treasures. Look at how he responds in verses 6 and 8. So he, Zacchaeus, hurried down and came and received Jesus joyfully. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Generosity and single-minded devotion. We see both at work in Zacchaeus because he was seeing clearly what was truly valuable. He had a healthy, clear, good eye. But how did this happen? If we go back again to Luke 18, right after the rich ruler had walked away, Jesus turns to his disciples and tells them that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And I don't know if you know this, camels can't fit through the eye of a needle. Jesus is saying it's impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples understood this, which is why they asked, then who can be saved? To which Jesus responds, what is impossible with man is possible with God. What happened to Zacchaeus was a miracle. He didn't make himself see. The Apostle Paul didn't make himself see the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. He hated Jesus. He was spiritually blind until the Holy Spirit opened the eyes of his heart. And praise be to God, by the power of that same Holy Spirit, blind eyes are still being opened today. 
which is really good news because I would argue that all of us are rich. If you have all that you need and a whole lot more, you're rich. If you have this little thing called expendable income, extra money that you can spend on things that you don't need, you're rich. And yet, there are many people in this room who can testify with a clear conscience that Jesus is more precious to them than all of their money and possessions. Because what is impossible with man is possible with God. And I've witnessed some amazing generosity from this church. So please don't hear this sermon as a condemnation. The Lord is at work in us. But if we're not careful, it's easy to lose our focus on Christ, isn't it? And I confess, I can sometimes get so fixated on reaching my financial goals that I can lose sight of what's truly valuable. And it's been a huge benefit to me to write this sermon because I need to be reminded of what true riches are. And I know I painted my son in a negative light earlier, but truth be told, I'm just like him. And apart from the grace of God, apart from God's parental oversight in my life, I would chase my materialistic desires straight down the broad road to destruction. It might not be video games and candy that threaten to gain mastery over me, but how easy is it to be mastered by dreams of financial security, financial independence, dreams of having a nice house and a plot of land, my own little piece of earth. The American dream. But we're not first citizens of the United States of America or of any other country on earth. We're first, and far more importantly, citizens of God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. And we should fix our focus there and not here. As Paul says in Colossians 3, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And so maybe, maybe the downturn in the markets lately, as painful as it might be, maybe it's a gift, a blessed reminder of the temporary nature of earthly treasures, a chance to refocus on things that are above where Christ is. Maybe this time of rising inflation and the fears of a recession, maybe it's a time to reassess who our master is. Is it the so-called almighty dollar or is our master the almighty Christ? And so finally and briefly, let's consider the final question, point number three, who is your master? Jesus says in verse 24 of Matthew 6, we're back there now, 
No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Yes, it's possible to have two employers. You can work for Boeing during the day and then take an evening shift at Safeway for some extra cash, but Jesus isn't talking about an employer-employee relationship. He's talking about the relationship between a master and a slave, a master and a servant. And he puts before us just two options of who we can serve, God or money. God or mammon is the word that he uses. And mammon was an Aramaic word that Jesus uses here as a kind of personification of money and possessions, a kind of personification of earthly treasures. And following on what Jesus just said about the eye, for us to think that we can serve both God and mammon is to have a bad eye. It's to be deceived, to be full of darkness, because these two masters are diametrically opposed so that to do anything in service of one is to reject and despise the other. To think that we can serve both God and mammon is to be like Israel in the Old Testament who thought that they could worship the Lord and worship Baal. It couldn't be done, and neither can we worship the creator and the created. And not to mention, mammon is a terrible God. Money is a terrible master. And there are many reasons why money is a terrible master. I'll just list a few. First, money can't satisfy. Can't satisfy. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. When we serve mammon, we constantly store up more and more and more, but we're never satisfied. And then we foolishly think that even though we're not satisfied with the stuff that we have, maybe if we just had a little more, then we would be satisfied. It's like drinking salt water in an effort to quench our thirst. Jesus is a better master. He tells the woman at the well, that whoever drinks of the water that he will give will never be thirsty again. He was promising satisfaction for the soul, a satisfaction that can only be found in knowing Christ. Second, money or mammon can't guarantee security. It can't guarantee security. When we have money in the bank, we can feel safe, right? We can feel secure. And if we don't have money in the bank, we can think that if we could just get some money in there, then we could enjoy some peace of mind. Then we could rest at ease. But we all know there are numerous ways that our financial security blanket could disappear overnight. Again, Jesus is a better master. He says in John 10, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. 
I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. The Bible isn't against wise financial practices. Get yourself an emergency fund. Max out that 401k if you can. Just recognize its limitations and don't put your trust in it. Don't serve it. Only Jesus can safely carry us through all the storms of this life and into the next. Finally, money can't save you. It can't save you. And we need to be saved because we've all rejected the one true God and we've all worshipped at the altar of mammon. And the Bible is clear that this is a sin that deserves death. Zacchaeus was guilty of this sin. Did Jesus just sweep his sin under the rug like it was no big deal? No, it is a big deal. You and I and Zacchaeus and the Apostle Paul are all guilty of sin. Sin that deserves death. Sin that needs to be dealt with. And this is why Jesus is an infinitely superior master. Because he who had no sin took all of our sin upon himself, even the sin of treasuring created things more than we treasure God, the sin of worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator, the sin of preferring the gift to the giver. He took our sin and he suffered the penalty for it. For us, at the cross, he died and was raised back to life so that we could put to death the hopeless, vain pursuit of earthly treasures and instead live for heavenly ones. Eternal joy, eternal peace, eternal security, never-ending satisfaction in the presence of God. Two masters. One demands that you give your life for it and in the end leaves you with nothing. The other gives his life for you and in the end gives you everything. Please don't leave this building until you know that you know the better master. Fix your eyes on him. Put your heart into his hands. Let's pray. Father, you are glorious beyond comparison. But our eyes are darkened by sin, by our possessions, and we struggle to see you as you are, we struggle to see you as better. I ask that you would give us clarity of vision. Help us to say with the psalmist, whom have we in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that we desire besides you. 
We need you. We need your help. We love you. And we pray everything in Jesus' glorious name. Amen.